Hi, this is Ellie Fishman, and welcome to our latest podcast. And this is going to be on pancreatic cancer. And at Hopkins, we do over 350 Whipple's procedures a year. So we have a lot of experience with pancreatic cancer. We have several pancreatic conferences a week with the surgeons and the oncologists, medical oncology, surgical oncology, radiation therapy. And it's a very important topic. Uh, when you think about um, the pancreas, we think about pancreatic tumors, we talk about surgical options. Whipple's procedure is still the classic distal pancreatectomy, central pancreatectomy, now the whole area of laparoscopic surgery, even laparoscopic Whipple's procedures. In some cases, we even seeing aggressive surgery with in-block resection of the celiac axis, the so-called Applebee's procedure, and in select cases with neuroendocrine tumors, even a nucleation is considered. A lot has changed. Uh, this article by Varan Chahari, with recent advances in pancreatic imaging and surgical technique, we're changing how we think about resectability. We've gone from tumors being resectable and unresectable to tumors of borderline resectability. I've spoken to you in the past about the importance of a multidisciplinary approach to diseases like pancreatic cancer, getting everybody together, getting the protocols down correct. You can have great impact in the first couple years of the pancreatic uh, clinic, and we're about to publish new data. We changed almost a quarter of the patients based on uh, their information that we generated from that multidisciplinary conference. And imaging was very, very important. 38 out of 203 patients, or 18.7%, had a change in their status of disease based on re-review of the imaging, but typically, more importantly, dedicated dual-phase 3D imaging of the pancreas. A recent article, a really good article by Chris Wolfgang and Ralph Rubin, emphasizing that multidisciplinary care is critical in pancreatic cancer. Uh, we know that some of the most common areas of misdiagnosis relate to the pancreas. I see many cases in pancreatic conference where the mass was identifiable early, the technique was poor, maybe IV wasn't given, or maybe it was a bad injection, the slices were too thick, things were missed like a dilated duct with a transition. But pancreatic cancer is one of the most common misses, and these days is something that you really need to be looking very, very carefully at. And we speak about, you know, it's always easy when you suspect pancreatic cancer and you're doing a dedicated study, but it's important to really recognize that often pancreatic cancer is a very funny diagnosis, vague abdominal pain, some weight loss, or just some vague symptoms. It can be somewhat of a challenge. We talk about non-invasive imaging of the pancreas, but at the end of the day, CT indeed is number one. And when articles have been published, and I'm not a big pusher of these meta-analysis, and this is, you know, one from a number of years ago, but at that time, even as it stood, helical CT at 16 slice was the preferred modality for looking at pancreatic cancer with a very high uh, sensitivity and specificity. Now, obviously, CT and MR and ultrasound have all gotten better, but CT still is going to be the gold standard. And the key about CT, as this article showed, was its ability to put patients into the correct categories of resectable and unresectable, and now, of course, borderline resectable. There's no doubt study design is critical. And one of the really good articles you need to read is January Radiology, which really looks at pancreatic cancer and determines what's the best way of doing it. What's the best technique? And 
here, the consensus from multiple institutions and several societies, American Pancreatic Association, the Society of Abdominal Radiology, dedicated pancreatic protocols, multi-phase imaging. This article also spoke a lot about using radiology templates that the, that one of the challenges in pancreatic cancer is people report things differently. You have an SMA, tumor abuts it, surrounds it, encases it, 180, 270, less than 180. I think a challenge is can we have the reports being the same? And the whole area about um, standard reporting is something that's becoming a very big issue in radiology. Referring clinicians do like it. Radiologists have variable opinions. But this article has a very good example of where it can be very helpful. It provides you a reporting template. Here's a couple of the quotes. Given the variability and expertise and uh, definition of pancreatic adenocarcinoma amongst different practitioners, a standardized template universally accepted is necessary. And the article goes on, um, adoption of the standard imaging reporting template should improve decision-making process for the management of patients. And that's really what matters because we're able to really uh, be able to compare results across multi-center trials. Again, the critical thing with a template is you have a good quality study. And this article goes so far as to say, if you don't have a dual-phase study with 3D imaging, you don't have good arterial and venous, you need to repeat the examination. And this article, again, you could look at it when you have some time, is a very good template because it speaks about how the protocol needs to be done, how you define different things from SMA to celiac involvement, to venous involvement from portal vein to SMV, to how you define extra pancreatic disease, and really speaks about everything you need to know so that everybody is on one page. And perhaps this is something you're going to see from societies that will really make life very easy. So in terms of protocols, what do we do? We do what's in that article. We give the patient water as a neutral contrast agent and then inject uh, at 5 cc's typically. We do arterial and venous phase imaging. It's rare that we'll ever do delayed phase imaging. Although axials have been the backbone, just like that article mentions, multiplanar and 3D imaging is indeed critical. Articles have shown that with multiplanar imaging, your accuracy is very high, just simply doing coronals and sagittals. This article by Manic, positive predictive value for resectability was 91% with four false negative results. And again, the importance of looking at things beyond the axial plane. And 3D imaging, we did this article at Hopkins House did 10 years ago and showed how good 3D imaging was and those numbers are no different today. It's really a critical part of what we do. Now when you look at the pancreas, we talk about a number of things. How do you find the mass? Well, sometimes the mass is 5 cm, there's not much of a challenge, but sometimes it's small. Sometimes you'll see a small mass with enhancement changes. Sometimes you'll see duct dilatation. Amputation of the pancreatic duct, you better be thinking carcinoma. Obstruction of the common duct, you better be thinking carcinoma. Maybe there's mass effect on adjacent organs. We talk with dual phase imaging about changes in enhancement. The pancreatic gland will enhance when you see decreased enhancement, like in this case, that's a carcinoma. Yes, you can see decreased enhancement with autoimmune pancreatitis, but that has a tubular shape. This is just a very nice example of that hypodense mass 
changing the texture of the gland. You can see compared to the rest of the gland, it's solid, but has areas of hypodense. You can see very nicely its relationship to the vascular structures. Or in this example, there's a dilated pancreatic duct. In the body, there's a two centimeter or so hypodense lesion. It's not distorting the contour of the gland, but it's that hypodense nature of the lesion that allows you to recognize it. And we can pick up smaller tumors. And here's another example a very similar showing you that. I talk about duct cutoff. If you see a pancreatic duct cutoff like this, there's a mass there. Once in a while, people talk about isoattenuating pancreatic cancers, but if you see a cutoff, there's a mass. Occasionally, you'll see a um, small neuroendocrine tumor causing this because of the uh, desmoplastic reaction, but when you see that transition, there is indeed a mass present. This ability to see changes in attenuation is very important. When I see change in attenuation, yes, I could think about pancreatitis, but I'm thinking about something changing flow, like vessel involvement or a dilated duct. And again, you can see it here. Compare the normal head of the pancreas and neck to the distal body and tail. Quite a difference. And again, in this case, the mass is not distorting the outline, but there's the pancreatic duct, there's glandular atrophy distally. To me, there's a tumor present. When you look more carefully, you do volume rendering, you can really accentuate the tumor and really recognize the tumor's presence. But again, that duct dilatation is a key finding. If you see duct dilatation and you don't see a mass, you better recommend EUS. You can do MR. EUS is often what will go directly to because in my experience, when you see this cutoff, this is always going to be a tumor and you need tissue confirmation. This article about isoattenuating pancreatic lesions, um, again, it's very, very infrequent, but typically there are secondary signs that really will clue you to the diagnosis. This article speaks about 5.4%, but I don't really think it's that high and I don't think it's a problem. The key then is looking at duct transition. I've shown you the pancreatic duct, but the common duct's the same thing. Obstructed common duct can be higher up, cholangiocarcinoma. Can be a stone impacted in the duct. Can be an ampullary lesion. Can be a carcinoma of the head of the pancreas. You look, need to look at the dilatation and where the dilatation is centered. So in this case, it's very nicely centered and you can follow it down. You'll often see a double duct sign. So the pancreatic duct is dilated as well as the common duct. You can see very nicely in this case, the irregular abrupt nature of that cutoff. And as you look at the textural maps, you can very nicely see the cause, which is this four centimeter mass in the pancreatic head, which also involves the duodenum, as well as the common duct and pancreatic duct. Or another example, the point about duct obstruction, glandular atrophy is common. You see a dilated pancreatic duct, atrophy of body and tail of pancreas, you see the transition zone, you look carefully, there's an obvious mass, which is encasing this patient's hepatic artery. Or in this case, you see a massively dilated pancreatic duct. Now, when you see duct obstruction, usually you see a mass. Sometimes you'll see a dilated duct like this, and it's a huge duct over a centimeter, and you don't see a mass. Well, in this case, what you have is a central IPMN, which invariably has high-grade dysplasia and is a precursor, or the patient will eventually, or will at that time, have pancreatic cancer. When you see a duct that's this large, you better not be assuming it's due to chronic pancreatitis. There's no signs of chronic pancreatitis here. It's a large tubular structure. Here's a few more images. That's classic 
classic, classic for central IPMN. Beautiful example. And when you get down to the head of the pancreas, you can really see what looks like a subtle mass at that point. Now, finding a pancreatic lesion is sort of step number one. But then, of course, is decision-making. Can this patient be resected? Does the patient need chemotherapy first or radiation therapy? Or will this patient never be resectable? We need to do arterial and venous mapping. We can create very nice maps of the arterial structure defining the SMA and celiac axis and their branches, determining whether the vessels abut the tumor or away from the tumor or encased by the tumor. We can look for collaterals as a sign of vascular involvement. And 3D imaging is really good for looking at these vessels. Things that even with patients resectable, variants in anatomy, common trunk for a celiac and SMA, for example, or patients with median awkward ligament syndrome, all of these things, and this is just a case of showing you the uh, common trunk for the celiac and the SMA, all of these things indeed become critical. In this case, there are collaterals by the head of the pancreas. Maybe you think there's invasion of the celiac, and when you look, the celiac looks okay, the hepatic and splenic are seen, but as you go through the images, you recognize this abrupt amputation of the celiac at its origin, and you have a large GDA. And through the GDA via SMA, the patient's getting flow to the liver. This becomes very important because at Whipple's procedure, you resect the GDA. If you resect the GDA, there's no flow to the hepatic artery, and the patient will infarct the liver. Very, very important in liver surgery as well as pancreatic surgery. So vascular mapping is important, not just the presence of vessel invasion, but also variants in anatomy or this median awkward ligament. And so it's very, very important. In most patients, they're asymptomatic. It's not going to matter. But in patients who are getting a Whipple's procedure, it can be life-threatening unless you're careful. Here's an example. Look at the narrowing of the patient's celiac, the postanotic dilatation, the collateralization through the GDA. Just a beautiful example. Now, the other point to mention is when you see these vessels, sometimes people say, oh my goodness, there must be tumor infiltration. Maybe I'm missing something. No, it's simply celiac stenosis and the patient has collaterals through the um, GDA. So just a very nice example you can see on the 3D map. And again, this median awkward ligament syndrome is critical in patients who are potential liver transplant patients, patients with planned extensive hepatic resection with GDA patency is critical, or as I mentioned, patients with Whipple's procedure where the GDA is routinely sacrificed. Now, we look at the axial images, and many times, particularly with big tumors, it's very easy to tell vessel involvement. But when you have less involvement, then it's a bigger challenge. So here you can see nicely on the coronal and sagittal encasement of the SMA and the soft tissue infiltration around the SMA, making this patient unresectable at this time, is very nicely seen in a range of images. If you only use the MIP, you're not gonna appreciate the soft tissue encasement. That's one of the big advantages of CT compared to classic angiography alone. We can see the encasement and not just the lumen, which looks sort of okay in this scenario. 
We talk about vessel involvement, and sometimes look at this patient, large tail of pancreas mass. It's invading the left kidney and encasing the left renal artery and vein. So we typically think about the SMA and the celiac and splenic and hepatic being involved, but here it's the patient's uh, renal artery. You can see differential function, delayed function in the left kidney relative to right. Just a beautiful example. And pancreatic tail tumors are often very large, and in this case, as in many others, they'll directly extend into the patient's kidney. So a very, very important diagnosis. A couple of articles talking about vascular resection and just how important it is. Uh, again, this is one of the great determinants for how we do things. With 3D imaging, it becomes very, very critical. And it's not just on the arterial side. The venous side is very important. Here's a nice example of widespread liver med, so it's not going to matter. But the patient has a tumor in the pancreatic head, which encases the portal vein SMV confluence. Very nicely shown in MIP imaging. This patient would be unresectable. With short segment involvement of the portal vein or SMV proximally, you can do a graft. But when it's this extensive, when there's so many collaterals, this is just not going to be the potential now or typically ever. Another example, here's the portal vein, and you can see there's a pancreatic cancer growing directly into the portal vein, obstructing the uh, pancreatic duct. And you can see the extension growing straight in, very nicely shown in the coronal view. So the splenic vein is occluded, and tumors growing directly into the patient's portal vein. This patient would not be resectable because you have direct invasion. And so, you know, splenic vein, okay, you can give that up, do a splenectomy, but direct invasion into the portal vein is typically not going to be a good sequela. And you can see it very, very nicely on these images. Another example, here is the patient with a pancreatic mass. And it's subtle, but it's there, this uh, portal vein to SMV infiltration of the patient's vessel. It's subtle, but look at the direct extension of the patient's primary tumor into the patient's SMV, nicely seen. And here's the same images in coronal plane. So something to think about. Now, when we look at the pancreas, we also look at direct extension beyond the pancreas into adjacent organs. And I think that's what we're gonna pick it up next time. So just take a chill pill for a couple minutes and we'll be coming back at you. Have a great day and I'll be right back, I promise.